0: This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Mira Nabulsi. This week, we spend the hour speaking with Lubna Kutami, a postdoctoral fellow in ethnic studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and the former executive director of the Arab Cultural and Community Center in San Francisco. We speak with her about the significance of the U.S. Census Survey for Middle Eastern and North African communities in the U.S. Stay with us. In recent months, the Trump administration's plan to add a citizenship question on the 2020 census has garnered significant controversy and media attention. For now, the Supreme Court decided to block the question, but the legal battles over what goes on on the census are far from over. The census is supposed to count all people living in the United States regardless of citizenship status. It is crucial for determining how federal funds are distributed and how congressional districts are drawn. The legal challenge to the citizenship question cites concern of an undercount, especially in immigrant communities. But there are other critical questions left out of this conversation, like why is the Trump administration refusing to add a box for the Middle Eastern and North African identifying people on the upcoming 2020 census form? Today, the exact number of people of Southwest Asian or Middle Eastern and North African background in the United States isn't exactly known. Arabs alone are estimated to be more than 3 million in the United States. And according to a report in the LA Times, in the last census, about 80% of people from the Middle East and North Africa region, or the MENA, were forced to self-identify as white because the census has no special box they can check. The other option for these communities has been to choose other, which many have resisted to do. For years, the Arab and Middle Eastern community organizations have advocated for a special category on the census, and they were close to getting one, until the Trump administration came into power. So why is the census important, and why is it so important to Arab and Middle Eastern communities in the U.S.? To get some answers to these questions and learn more about the history of racialization of these communities, I spoke with Lubna Qutami. She is a postdoctoral fellow in ethnic studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and the former executive director of the Arab Cultural and Community Center in San Francisco.
1: You know, since the early 1900s, there were many different communities, what we currently call communities of color, immigrant communities, and different communities who were advocating to be classified as white on the U.S. census. And the reason for that was that this is a country that was founded on whiteness as a logic that was deeply embedded in its policies and its governance. Therefore, only white uh, people were able to acquire citizenship, and that was based on the original Naturalization Acts of 1790. Um, Whiteness was connected to property ownership, to rental, uh, land rental, or home rental in certain neighborhoods and communities. So those advocacy efforts to be classified as white were really about people being able to own land, own property, and be able to achieve a certain level of civil and um, social and human rights in the United States. Um, In the aftermath of the 1960s movements and the passage of the Civil Rights Act, there became a different orientation to the U.S. Census among communities of color. And the reason was is that we were in this moment in the 1970s where addressing uh, historical inequities, specifically racial inequities, within different communities became really important. And so one way to do that was to be able to understand the specific demographic makeup of different communities, their social welfare conditions, their health conditions, their educational statuses, where they were living, how they were living, and to be able to demonstrate specific needs among those communities and advocate to federal and state government for policy reform or to advocate for uh, public monies so that those monies could be spent on strengthening those communities and addressing any kind of social uh, or racial inequities and gaps. For Arab communities, we are one community that's never been reclassified on the census. So until today, we're still considered white. And this is a huge problem for Arab community-based organizations who struggle to acquire linguistically and culturally specific services funding from the the U.S. federal and state government and from being able to trace and catalog the needs of our own community. So, you know, in order to be able to address, for example, the social services needs of our own community we have to conduct our own research which is deeply costly very difficult to do in the absence of uh, publicly accessible data and um, without being able to actually do those our own needs assessment researches um, and even so when doing them it's hard to you know have a full understanding a comprehensive understanding of where arab communities are and what their social conditions and needs are but once we are able to do it it becomes really difficult to be able to acquire specific public resources that other communities uh, are able to acquire because the census demonstrates their needs. The other thing of why um, Arab communities, it's so important for us to be able to actually know our, our, our demographics is that Aside from the sort of community wellness and social services needs of our community, there's also the question of political mobilization. Mm -hmm. If we are able to know where our communities reside, we're able to work with them uh, through collective organized approaches to civic engagement. And that would strengthen this community's ability to influence politics in the US, whether it's at a local municipality level or at a state level or federal government. In the absence of being classified on the census, it's quite difficult to actually be able to mobilize an Arab community base for policy reform, whether it's on um, a domestic national front or to be able to influence foreign policy. And for Arab communities, this is particularly important, especially considering within the last 20 years, the U.S. has had a very heavy hand in foreign policy, war-making and supporting of occupations and supporting of you know, autocratic regimes in, in our region.
0: And that's tied to the increasing number of immigrants and refugees from the Arab region. But yet, at the same time, I feel like specifically in the Bay Area, because of the how the geography is, we see that Arabs tend to be more scattered. And it, it is really hard to get a sense of where the community is, how big it is, where is the concentration exactly. So from your experience, and especially uh, your previous work with the Arab Culture and Community Center, do you feel like that was particularly hard in the Bay Area?
1: So, you know, through my work with the Arab Cultural and Community Center, we were um, the largest Arab community-based organization organization in San Francisco uh, for a really long period of time, doing multi multiple different types of services, so youth pro- programming, cultural programming, domestic violence and sexual assault intervention and prevention work, as well as social services and vocational training uh, and ESL classes for newcomers to the U.S. That work in and of itself allowed us to have kind of an organic understanding of where the Arab community was and what their needs and and issues were. But that was always based on our connections to clients, donors. Um, and members of the Arab Cultural and Community Center. So there were certainly many pockets of Arab communities that we were not in direct communication with and didn't know very much about where they were, um, how they were living, what kind of needs they had. And they probably didn't know about us as an organization as well. Originally, through our work at the ACC, we were always under the impression that we, you know, we have these divisions between the older Arab immigrant communities, most of whom come from the Levant region, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Jordan, and that many of them started out inside of the city of San Francisco, but through time and through social uh, upward mobility had moved out to the suburbs, uh, the San Mateo County Peninsula, um, and many of which had moved out to the East Bay because of rising costs in San Francisco. And so that there was a decline of an Arab population within San Francisco, and that the main Arab demographic that was in San Francisco were new newcomer immigrants, mostly are coming from Yemen families, as well as North Africa and some from Egypt. But in 2013, we embarked on a project, a collaborative project with the California College of Arts, uh, with the architecture department and a program called Engage. And the project was to a co-teach a class with Dr. Mona El-Khafif, and she had uh, students who were mostly architecture students who were learning GIS, geographic information systems. But she wanted to teach them about using their skills for social justice and for social welfare for marginalized communities. Um, so the concept of the class turned into a, a class that was about using GIS software to map Arab communities, uh, Middle Eastern communities, but specifically Arab communities in the Bay Area, know demographically where they where they are, and their needs based on the American Community Survey. So it's not the every 10-year census uh survey, it's the every 2-year census. You,
0: can you explain what the American Community Survey is
1: sure. So the American Community Survey um, takes place every two years, and it's um, randomly selected participants that are asked to to fill out the survey. And it's a it's a very it's a long form. It's much longer than um, the regular census that comes out every ten years. And the idea is that it's a it's a sample of certain neighborhoods and communities in order to get an idea of what kind of issues are affecting the the public in the United States. Mm-hmm. So based on that survey, there's longer questions that ask questions like language spoken at home um, or country or city of birth. And so from those kinds of data, even though Arabs are not classified as our own uh, racial category on the census, from from questions like that, we were able, able to infer who might be an Arab population, depending on who spoke, for example, the Arabic language in their household. Based on that, we did our mapping and found that there was... All of these different kind of Arab pockets of Arab communities and neighborhoods that we had never assumed that they were living, and that their many different kind of social needs were evidenced through through this um, survey as well, including. You know access to education access to eligibility for food stamps but not having have not having access to food stamps um and so that's when we realized that this kind of simplistic idea that we have about the old arab immigrant generation that lives in the in the suburbs and a new arab immigrant generation that lives inside of san francisco is actually much more diverse much more complex and much more geographically widespread than we had originally thought it was
0: and I, I don't know if you want to say anything about how the community has grown and changed maybe so, since then. So because it, it has changed a lot and we know there's a larger immigrant and especially refugee population now, but it is hard again, uh, like I said earlier, it is hard to get to know where people live, map that out. So it makes it seem like the census would be really important at this very moment
1: yes that's that 's certainly true. Um, what we can say, there certainly is new waves of Arab immigrants to the Bay Area. many young people, many people coming by themselves, many people coming as students, many people coming on a tourist visa and po- possibly overextending that visa, and you know their status turning undocumented. One of the things that we as Arab organizers know. Uh, from our from our organic experience, not you know not with the help from the sort of statistics that we really could rely on from census data, is that a lot. What we do know about our Arab community is the the waves of Arab migration to the United States, specifically San Francisco, caused by policy changes both in U.S. immigration policy and caused by shifting events that have happened in our region. So if we go back a bit, if we think about 1965, right? 1965 is the US Immigration Reform Act, which basically swings open the US doors to immigrants. Um, The the process becomes much easier for family reunification. um, And we start seeing these huge waves of Arab immigrants coming to the United States and settling in San Francisco. But that also, that time period also corresponds with the 1967 war, in which Palestinians from the West Bank, from Jerusalem, were made refugees a second time in many cases and were finally granted political asylum or refugee status in the United States. It also coincides with the early 1970s where you have a reordering of geopolitical power in the Arab region and you have economic conditions deteriorating. So we do we, what we have been able through our own organic experience is to trace Arab immigrant immigration waves to the U.S. that usually the the families that come together or entire communities that come together. What has been harder for us are the individuals, single people who come here, whether it's through political asylum or through other avenues. Mm-hmm. That's been harder for us to, to trace both without a geopolitical analysis of what's happening there, as well as not having the census data mm-hmm. um here and where they're settling, where they're located, what their challenges and struggles are. That's been really difficult for us to kind of assess.
0: OK, so let's move to talk about the. 2010 census and the organizing efforts that you were involved in around including a box on the census form to count people of Arab uh, and Middle Eastern background or the MENA region, the Middle East, North Africa region. How did that come about and what was kind of the language that you guys used and were pushing people to use when filling that census form? Tell us more about that.
1: So Uh, In 2009, um, the Arab Cultural and Community Center, it's an organization that is part of a broader network called the National Network of Arab American Communities. Um, It's mostly facilitated out of access in Michigan. And the National Network of Arab American Communities is comprised of about 26 different Arab community-based organizations across the U.S. From 2007, the national network was having many conversations about how Arab communities can become more deeply civically engaged. And specifically at that time, we were really thinking about comprehensive immigration reform, which was on the table, and us as an Arab community needing to have a, a voice in that. So come 2009, NAC, the National Network, really started having intense conversations about the way that we can engage to encourage our community to participate in the census, to check the other box, and to write in Arab, because we were not given a box for selection. At the same time, on a local level, groups like the Arab Resource and Organizing Center and groups like Ayadi, which was a social service organization at that time, they were also encouraged by the local census bureau officials and by different uh, communities of color and immigrant rights groups to participate in the census. So the three organizations together, the ACC and the Arab Resource and Organizing Center and Ayadi came together for a local organizing campaign, which was also connected to the national campaigns that were happening across the country. For us, we had borrowed one slogan from a group, the Arab American Civic Council in Los Angeles, and that slogan was, check it right, you ain't white. And the concept was to really help Arab communities understand that Legally, we are classified as white in the United States. Now, on a social level, it's very rare that Arab communities would say I'm white or think of themselves as classified as white. But um,
0: right now, but in the past, that was different. Yes, Mm
1: -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, And we can talk a little bit more about that kind of racialized experience and how it's changed over time. But for us, we really wanted to highlight a a specific form of political education, cultural education for a community about why we were classified as white on the U.S. Census and how it hurts us, how it hurts community-based organizations, how it hurts our communities here, and how it limits us from having a voice and an influence in terms of the U.S. foreign policy in our region. So that was one of the slogans. The second slogan was that there's nothing other about us. Check other right Arab. And that was one slogan that was developed here to kind of counter the way that in the post 9-11 Um, context, Arab communities um, have consistently been othered, right? Like as racialized as a domestic enemy, a foreign threat uh, within all of these new racialized sort of stereotypes and discourses of the war on terror. We really wanted to combat this otherness from the war on terror and also develop more education within our community about where this otherness, othering of immigrant communities comes from. That's not just us as Arabs alone. And that it is actually not just post 9-11, but it's deeply, deeply influenced by Orientalism. And so during that time when we were running the census campaign, it wasn't just about canvassing at local Arab community stores and homes and churches and mosques and community centers, leafleting, passing out brochures and talking with people. We also did a number of cultural educational events, um, so film screenings, community discussions, art workshops, where we could talk about race and the census and Arab communities. And in those discussions, it wasn't just about our victimization or our racialization as Arab communities. It was also about how whiteness historically has functioned in the United States to you know, eradicate indigenous communities from their land, to control Black communities' bodies, to create systems of slavery, to create Um, exploitation of labor among immigrant communities. So there was a lot of really rich educational work that was happening around race Mm -hmm. that was then connected to these questions of, well, what does it mean in the contemporary context to achieve racial justice, not just for Arab communities, but for all of these communities who have suffered from whiteness as both a logic and as a system of of governance and policies in the U.S.?
0: So I don't know if you want to say something about, as well, the background of this campaigning to include a box for the Middle East and North Africa on the U.S. census. This is not a new campaign. It's been uh, in the works for years and decades. And under Obama's administration, there was a move towards approving that, but the decision was reversed when Trump came into power. So I don't know if you want to say a little bit more about the history of this organizing beyond just the 2010 census, but also generally the history of this demand.
1: Yeah. You know, in the the 2010 census that I'm talking about, that campaign effort to con- communicate and educate our own community to check other and write in Arab That was what we were able to do between 2009 and 2010 before the census came out because we did know at that time that they were not going to include an Arab or Amina category in the census. And what we wanted was to prove our demographics as much as possible, and to set up the conditions of possibility for a change in the way the Census Bureau was dealing with us as a community for the 2020 census. But this work, this advocacy work among Arab communities to try to get ourselves included in the census, it's been happening for over two decades. The forerunners of this campaign has been the Arab American Institute in Washington, DC. The American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee has played a huge role in this. And of course, Both of those organizations in collaboration with NAC, uh, uh, the National Network of Arab American Communities, have really played major roles in terms of communication with government officials, with the Census Bureau's offices, creating educational forums and campaigns to try to get a category for us. The work between 2010 and 2017 to really pressure the Census Bureau to account for this community, this long too often neglected community, this community that is hyper invisible when it comes to accessing needs, social needs, political um, needs, and all of these things, but hyper visible in a post 9-11 Iran-terror context. And Nadine Naber, Amani Jamal, many Arab American studies theorists have really talked about this paradox of hyper visibility and invisibility. You know, so this community that's been advocating for over two decades to try to get counted in in the 2020 census, it was a total shock for us in 2018, January of 2018, when Karen Battle, who's the chief of uh, the Census Bureau's population division made an announcement that MENA would be removed from the 2020 census. MENA as a category would be removed from the 2020 uh, census. And it was actually a totally preposterous explanation that she gave. She talked about the MENA category through many of the different testing scenarios that the Census Bureau had implemented, Mm -hmm. had had become clear that perhaps people thought of MENA as an ethnic category, as an ethnicity, rather than a racial category in and of itself. And the paradox there is that, you know, the Census Bureau um, had created, through the Office of uh, Management and Budget, had created a report in 2017 called the Standards on Race and Ethnicity. And in that report Mm -hmm. itself, it talked about the MENA category as including 11 different ethnicities, 19 different nationalities, and many different pan-ethnic and geographic terms of what constituted it. Mm -hmm. So how does a category that is that broad then all of a sudden become an ethnicity, according to um, Karen Battles' um, discussion in t- in 2018.
0: So, can you just explain these differences, the difference between ethnicity and race? Because honestly, it is pretty confusing, especially if we consider the statements made by the census official, and also when we talk about race. According to this explanation, then is race in this case just black or white? And then ethnicity becomes more different backgrounds, nationalities. Do you want to explain essentially what the difference is, especially what what we could infer from the statements by the census officials?
1: Yeah, it is quite confusing. And I think that there's a lot of people with different kind of ideological and political perspectives that have different explanations for it. So ethnicity is often based on the ethnic origins specifically tied to linguistic linguistic origins of particular people. And so race, though, sometimes becomes by default because of the absence of popular understandings of race in the society. And I think there's a change in the recent decade, but mm. the race is a socially constructed project, right? there is nothing biologically fixed about race. There's nothing that's ever been biologically fixed about race. The the struggle for of the conflation between ethnicity and race is in part because race was explained through the old kind of scientific iterations of mm-hmm. racial discrimination as biologically bound so that white people were genetically somehow different than black people and more superior, genetically superior, right? Utilizing scientific terms of racism. Now, today, most people, will throw out, you know, everyone knows that there's no validity to the sort of scientific uh, racism, um, eugenics argument, except that we are seeing kind of a reiteration of that in the Trump moment. But, you know, today, we think of those old terms of understanding race as old. And there has been an acceptance that race was something that was socially constructed to strengthen white supremacy, to strengthen European colonialism, American U.S. imperialism across the world. And it was utilized as a justification for that. And it, And throughout different centuries, it, it had different iterations of itself, whether it was Christian and non-Christian or white and non-white. Today, we know that there's nothing biologically fixed about race, but we utilize the frameworks and the categories of race to, in order to advance social justice, social wellness, and political rights from communities who have for centuries been um, denied their basic fundamental rights um, in a system of white supremacy.
0: And that's kind of ironic.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think part of the reason, you know, people utilize race and why the sense it is important for there to be, you know, racial statistics brought up in the census is because, precisely because this narrative that we've been telling ourselves in the United States after 1964, after the Civil Rights Act, is that we're in a post-racial society where there is no difference between any racial groups, right? But fundamentally, there are differences. There is embedded remnants of colonial and racial legacies that still take effect in policies today, whether it's policies that affect education access, health access, neighborhood redistricting uh, policies, uh, political rights, human rights. And we know that white communities still until today, you know, have really, really vast uh, differences and statistics from communities of color, immigrant communities, black community and indigenous communities. And so for that reason, we do need to rely on racial categories in order to highlight those statistical differences and to highlight uh, differences in equities and to be able to reconcile uh, and change those conditions.
0: And so it's interesting then that Arabs, Middle Easterners or even Muslims are racialized in America. And maybe we can talk a little bit about what we mean here by racialization, especially in this very specific context of these communities. And it is clear that these communities have been, especially post 9-11, have been facing a certain type of discrimination and maybe racism, if we may call it so. But at the same time, they're not entitled to their own category or their own box on the census. Can we say that there is a contradiction going on here?
1: Yeah, it's uh, quite um, alarming uh, and it's quite it's quite alarming that there's not actually more attention paid to that paradox between visibility hypervisibility and invisibility. Um, when we think about racialization of Mena communities, Middle Eastern North African communities, it's not just a post 9/11 phenomena, it dates back Um, historically, and it's deeply, deeply embedded in the different ways that immigrant communities experienced kind of different forms of alienation and discrimination here in the United States, dating back to Alien Sedition Acts, to the Chinese Exclusion Act, and different ways that immigrant communities were never kind of seen as part of the fabric of the U.S. um, national imaginary because it was something that was largely dominated by uh, white middle class, what it meant to be a white middle class American In the MENA category, particularly, we have this history of Orientalism, as it's been coined by Dr. Edward Said, who talked about the way the West gazes at the East and paints this entire region with a single stroke, you know, homogenizing uh, a region of of millions of people, many different cultures and ethnicities and religions and kind of creating one really reductive simplified stereotype of that community. And largely that stereotype for a very very long time had been the stereotype of the backward barbaric savage muslim, uh, middle eastern arab other, which was incapable of integrating and assimilating into american cultural and political life and which actually posed a direct social, cultural and political threat to the United States um, national identity. Mm -hmm. And so throughout the decades, we know that that kind of depiction of MENA communities was really deeply instrumental in the United States waging different kinds of wars in the region, allying itself with the state of Israel, allowing itself to justify why it was invading certain areas, and it actually played a really huge role in the US invasion of Iraq um, in the early 2000s, because that war was justified in the name of, quote unquote, bringing democracy and civility and human rights and women's rights to a people who were too backward and barbaric to know how to achieve it for themselves, right? So those old Orientalist logics have played a huge role in um, the history of racializing and creating a a political project of how we understand this quote unquote population as a racial group in the United States. And in the aftermath of September 11th, um, we saw those things really escalate in terms of domestic policies here in the United States as well. So in the name of the war on terror, in the name of um, this ominous, ambiguous terrorist threat to the United States, what ended up happening was the United States federal government reorganized many of its institutions, allocated millions and millions of dollars to so-called counterterrorism work in the united states and started distributing monies public monies on all levels from many different departments and programs on the federal level and the state level and it's not just about policing and about uh, government policies but it's also monies that go to school districts and health institutions to quote unquote secure our communities from the threat of terrorism or to so-called identify radical extremism or terrorism mm-hmm. And so that's part of the contemporary racialization of MENA communities, that in the contemporary moment, you have all of these public monies that are spent to galvanize the American public as participants in the surveillance of Arab and Muslim communities, of MENA communities. Uh, of, you know, There's a project called Suspicious Activity Reporting, which we've probably seen many signs of this, like on the BART station and different places, where see if something, see something, say something, if you just look at someone and think they're suspicious, mm-hmm. you can report them. And so what kind of... Uh, violations to First Amendment rights, to free speech rights, to freedom of religion uh, and to all of these different constitutional rights that people are supposed to have in the United States and human rights. If they're not U.S. citizens, I don't want to reserve those rights only for American citizens. Right. Human rights, uh, moral rights. (laughs) Um, What kind of violations are happening in the name of this war on terror? right? And who are the victims of that project? So many people will say MENA communities are the victims of that racialized project, which they are. Not all MENA communities, not all MENA communities in the same way, but they certainly have fallen victim to those kinds of racial discrimination and stereotypes.
0: And part of that is also Muslims, which includes a really wide array of people with little in common other than belonging to this faith. And I think this is perhaps one of the clearest examples of how racialization works in America. Muslims in America became this identity that's synonymous with a national background, putting so many people from different backgrounds in this category. And then based on that, imposing certain types of laws, perceptions, or uh, ways of treating people in these communities.
1: No, absolutely. There has not been a really persistent logic in any of the policies that have come down from the federal level, that evidence that the United States really is trying to take measures to protect its country from the threat of foreign extremism or terrorism. What there has been evidence of is that they have gathered people on the basis of religion, on the basis of phenotype, on the basis of how they look, of how they how they practice certain cultural traits, mm-hmm. uh, certain political principles that they stand for, certain forms of activism that they stand for. They've branded them all in the category of sort of sus- suspicious, mm-hmm. and it demonstrates that there have been members of the MENA community who have been affected by this, but this type of um, crackdown has really affected many different communities. So it's affected um, African-American Muslim communities. It's affected African-American communities. It's affected immigrant, all immigrant communities. It's affected Latino communities, indigenous communities, because in the name of the war on terror, if the United States is strengthening their policing apparatus, militarizing their their police, militarizing their borders, militarizing Custom and Border Patrol, adding more and more money to more sophisticated weapons technology and crowd control technology, right? Whose bodies are being affected by that? And we know whose bodies are being affected by police terror. We know whose bodies are being affected by uh, militarization of the border. And it's not just MENA community. So this is much larger than just MENA communities being affected by it, and just MENA communities being the cause of this expansion of security apparatus. We know that containment of Black bodies in inner cities has been something that has been a historical legacy of the United States. Containment of Black insurgency, a Black uprising, um, a Black uprising for civil and human rights has been something that has been long part of the U.S. State Department's mission to contain those kind of social movements for for freedom Mm -hmm. and this is just yet another iteration that in in the post 9 11 context there's this excuse of an of a foreign threat in order to you know arm the police with military technologies which they're using against black bodies in places like ferguson and in places like baltimore and in places where we have been seeing this wave of black insurgency in the in the last 10 years
0: For those of you joining us now, you are listening to my conversation with Lubna Kutami. She is a postdoctoral fellow in ethnic studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and the former executive director of the Arab Cultural and Community Center in San Francisco. We are speaking about how Arab and Middle Eastern community organizations have long advocated for a special box on the U.S. census. And why does it matter for people from these communities to have their own category on the 2020 census form? More of this interview after the break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Mira Nabulsi. go back to the census given everything you're saying is it then a contradiction or not that the government refuses to include a box for communities from the Middle East and North African region or what we've been calling the MENA box
1: Uh, it's a huge contradiction and it's not totally um, you know I, I can't I can't guess what the Trump administration uh, or the Census Bureau under the Trump administration is thinking right now. One thing um, I would say is that it would be deeply uh, complicated for them to have MENA communities racially classified on their own terms in the census because that would allow them to have a stronger political mobilization in this country to make their voices heard on federal, state, and local levels in ways that they're not heard right now in order to understand the needs and demographics of their community and through community based organizations respond to those needs to empower the community. And I think that those are all things that the government under a Trump administration does not want to see. They do not want to see healthy, thriving MENA communities in a context where they rely on the vilification of MENA communities in order to expand um, imperialist wars overseas and in order to expand securitization and uh, militarization of police and borders here in the US.
0: Mm -hmm. And I don't know if we mentioned uh, this, but during the Obama administration, the MENA box was approved and it wasn't until the Trump administration came into power that it was again revoked or the decision did not go forward?
1: So it was never f- formally approved under Obama, but that was the trajectory that the Census Bureau was going in, okay. right? So the Obama administration was uh, more accommodating to allowing for the, the MENA category. But because it was so far out from the 2020 census, it didn't. I don't think that there was a formal approval of it. Yeah.
0: And do you want to say something about how this decision to not include the MENA box may be considered a breach of the First Amendment?
1: So it's important to think about the relationship between all of the First Amendment violations happening with MENA communities and the census. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, this last couple years, we've seen a new iteration of the Muslim ban finally adopted, what's commonly dubbed as the Muslim ban, this is not a brand new thing for the United States. If we remember back to right after 9-11, there was a program called NCIRS, which basically asked for um, Muslim young men from 25 different Muslim majority country- countries to come and register themselves at, at then INS offices, right? So these kinds of specific targeting of Muslim communities or of MENA communities in the name of national security has been happening for the last 20 years and is deeply characteristic of the United States function over the last, you know, since its inception as a country, right? One thing that has been deeply ironic is that whenever we see these kinds of policies passed, one of the major communities that comes out and stands with MENA communities in protest are older Japanese communities, saying, this is reminding us of internment. This is reminding us of the time that we were called enemy aliens. This is the time that there was a racial discrimination and racial kind of um, homogenization of our entire communities. And we won't stand for it. It's a violation of First Amendment rights. It's a violation of freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and, and so on and so forth. But there have been other ways in which those kinds of overt expressions of racial justice are then made an excuse for when it comes to questions of the war on terror. So one example would be in two thousand and thirteen when Democrats and civil society organizations across the United States were really pushing for comprehensive immigration reform, one of the things um, that they were really pushing for was ending racial profiling as part of um, immigration reform that they didn't want you know customs and border uh, border patrol to be able to pull people over on the basis of racial profiling. But there was also language that said you know that augmented this language against racial profiling thats saying, saying that it could be done if it was in the name of national security and it could be done if it was, you know, suspicion of someone based on their national origin or religious origin. So in in other moments when we feel we're making huge progress on questions of race, how is it getting repackaged if we're talking about nationality or religion? And how then is that a violation of First Amendment rights? Now, how this relates to the census in the end is that if you have a community of people who are constantly enduring these kinds of policies, but who are not um, given the resources to be able to mobilize their own demographic, to be able to actually have a strong, powerful message sent to DC, but also mobilizing community bases to pressure state officials and local municipalities. This is basically giving people a green light because it's not easy for people to see how the war on on terror is affecting women, how it's affecting black and brown communities. It's always kind of linked directly to affecting Muslims or affecting MENA communities. And if that community is not capable and not given the resources it needs to mobilize itself in the proper way, then the direct relationship between these violations of First Amendment rights and the census is never articulated quite clearly.
0: So let's talk a little bit about something that's been reported on extensively in the past period, which is the citizenship question on the census. The government had announced that this month the census form will be finalized and that the printing would be starting in July. But now we're seeing some delay potentially on that Uh, Did you want to talk a little bit about the citizenship question and how it pertains to the Arab and Middle Eastern community, especially as we are now during this time when white supremacist forces have been truly unleashed under the Trump administration in ways that we haven't seen so publicly in a very long time?
1: Yeah, certainly. So I think the citizenship question is a really important one. Uh, And part of the reason it's deeply important is because today when we talk about, especially during the last few years of the Obama administration, actually really from 2013 onward, the push to develop a comprehensive immigration reform and to offer a pathway to citizenship for undocumented people in the United States, that push really was something that we thought we would see a realization of in the Obama moment. Um, that would carry on, that would have remnants um, these 11 million people, undocumented people who now have a pathway to citizenship. Unfortunately, those processes, as well as other processes of, you know, healthcare and all these other things have been really slashed under the Trump administration. But even during the Obama administration, the struggle about the way that we talked about undocumented people is that it was always stereotypically referring to a very specific ethnic, national or racial group, um, largely Latinos, mostly Mexicans. Mm -hmm. And they do constitute a very large number of undocumented people and, of course, deserve a legal pathway to citizenship, as do all undocumented people. But we have many communities in the United States who also have large numbers of undocumented people, including Cambodian, including Arab communities. And these communities are largely unaccounted for when we're talking about immigration reform and um, social justice and um, migrant and refugee rights and justice. Usually, today, when we talk about Arab communities and immigration, a lot of the debate is around refugees, right? Um, That refugees should be allowed access to the United States, that refugees should be allowed resettlement to the U.S. And this has also been another huge um, issue with the Trump administration. After a huge hand that the United States has played in Iraq, in Syria, and in many different places in the region, even in Yemen today, backing the Saudi war in Yemen, we are seeing huge waves of refugees from the region. And the United States is not willing to really even accept even a very, very, very small fraction of those communities. I think in the last years of the Obama administration, the IRC was reporting that only about 10,000 refugees were, there was only a quota for about 10,000 Syrian refugees to be given in the U.S. So a lot of our time and effort in the United States as Arab communities has been paying attention to questions of the Muslim ban, questions of this uh, flagrant, Uh, really overt intolerance to refugees, questions of the United States' role in foreign policy and war making. But at the same time, this has not allowed for us to account for the fact, very fact that we in our own communities also have a substantial number of undocumented people that we need to be advocating for Mm -hmm. as part of the broader questions of, of their status, of their rights, their human rights, and of their pathway to citizenship. Um, The second thing about how this relates to the census, which is a very complicated and delicate topic in terms of Arab organizing, is that on the one hand, when we do do cultural uh, and political education in our communities and talk about what we discussed as the racialization of MENA communities, right? A huge part of the way that MENA communities are racialized is through these programs of secret spying and surveillance and the tracing and cataloging of MENA bodies in the United States, whether they're documented or undocumented, whether they're American citizens or immigrant communities. Mm -hmm. And- When we do enough education to understand that that is kind of one of the main ways that racial subjugation is happening in the United States. But then we go to those same communities and say, hey, listen, on the census, check other and write in Arab, don't write in white. There's a contradiction there because our communities are deeply uh, afraid and feel attacked and feel spied on and surveilled and paranoid. And so why would they want to self-identify themselves, where they live, what their income is. Um, and offer all of this personal information to the federal government that they have no trust in, that they've long had no trust in, but under the Trump administration, they have just absolutely zero trust in. And so that's one complication that we'll have in the 2020 census campaign that I think we did not have in the Obama census campaign in the same levels. Mm -hmm. In the Obama census campaign, those questions did come up every now and then about the security of our communities, if they actually participate in the census. But it was something that was very easy for us to talk about and say, you know, there's always that risk. But at the same time, they're collecting data on us. They're already surveilling us. They probably already have that information on us. And if we can actually gather our statistics and numbers within the census, we can at least self-defend ourselves. We can at least self-provide for ourselves, right? Um, That's going to be a harder slogan to push in any campaign efforts for 2020. And it's something that Arab communities are really going to have to consider Mm -hmm. in terms of the effects of the last 10 years.
0: So then in your opinion, do the benefits outweigh the risks for people filling the census, especially with this concern about the citizenship question? Since like you said, most likely the government has a lot of that information already or is capable of collecting that information anyhow if they want to. So what is it really that's so risky or endangering about filling the census?
1: Uh, This is a... Uh, A really difficult question, uh, because for me, I'm someone that strongly believes that in the absence of having a category in the census, there's still so much that our communities can do to strengthen our community based organizing, our community based organizations. Um, Our forms of philanthropic giving, our forms of sustainable um, development of our organizations, um, addressing the social service needs, addressing the educational needs, uh, civic engagement. I think that there's a lot that can be done. And I think that like many other communities, marginalized communities in the United States, our organizations have taken a severe blow um, within the last couple decades, specifically the last decade, Um, not just because of cuts to resources, not just because of secret spying and surveillance, but also because our organizations have struggled in knowing how to move in the complexity of the political times that we're in. Um, You know, it used to be in the old days that there was some clarity on what the issues were that we were trying to address. And I think today there's, even our community based organizations they're overworked they're overwhelmed they can't keep up with what they're tending to like they, it feels that there's these pockets of crisis that are emerging in every single um direction and it's very hard to know like how do we mobilize against the muslim ban if we are basically barely me- meeting our basic needs in terms of social service for a community and how do we meet the ne- needs and service needs of our community if we don't have the resources to address all of the community. So I think when you ask the question about whether or not it's worth it, whether or not the positive outweighs the risks, I think at this place where we are right now, the answer would be yes, if and only if our community-based organizations can really sit down for reassessments of their organizing work and finding ways to link their direct service, social service, domestic violence, youth empowerment work with political mobilization in this country. Mm -hmm. If there's not an ability, strategic planning ability for community based organizations to do this, I don't know if the risk outweighs it. But I think that for where we are, I don't think it'll hurt us. And I think for where we are, we really need to see kind of a new wave of community based organizations addressing our um, civic needs.
0: So what I think what you're saying then is that there must be an organizational power to counter any possible attempts by the Trump administration to weaponize whatever information they get from people through the census.
1: Yeah. I mean, I know that in moments of extreme violence and extreme repression and surveillance, like what we're witnessing with the Trump administration, I know instinctually uh, people have two responses. One response is to hide away and to protect themselves. And that's warranted and legitimate because of how much we're seeing and how scary the times are. The other is this insurgency that's um, deeply sporadic and spontaneous. And it kind of takes forms and people going out onto the streets and protesting against some racist attack that's happened or some racist policy that was just passed or a sexist policy that was just passed. Right. But What's missing in between both of those different kind of reactions is the actual return to organizing, to actually trying to create some kind of vision, some kind of short term and long term goals, and some kind of accumulation of power within our communities in order to rise up against these different kind of policies and racist and sexist and xenophobic kinds of hate um crimes that are happening ac- across the country. Insurgency on all levels is deeply needed, but it needs to be organized and we need to like actually is- be able to establish some kind of vision within our own community-based organizations and of course accountability, people's accountability from these community-based organizations who maybe are not being totally accountable to their general public. Mm-hmm. Um I think that that's really important.
0: So that's a great note to end on, but I did want to ask you a final question. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on the census itself because even in the recent coverage of the for example citizenship question and we did see critical coverage of that but there is very little critical conversation around what the census itself does which is putting people into categories and tying that to resources um, I'd like you to problematize the very basic idea of the census for us
1: yeah, I think that that's a great question. Uh, you know, a lot can be said about the census. Its origins in terms of maintaining, strengthening, upholding systems of racial segregation and white supremacy and unequal distribution of wealth and power in the US. Its function today in terms of what many people say the census just kind of maintains the status quo of like post 1960s neoliberal multiculturalism that never really was, you know, that came with a shift in racial representation in culture and sports and music and arts and politics, but it didn't totally come with a redistribution of wealth and power amongst racial communities and that the census and what it does in many ways upholds that system, right? By making sure that political movements are co-opted through resources that are given from the government to NGOs with specific constrained rubrics of what kind of political activity they can do, what kind of social service work that they can do. Um, And there's been a lot of work that has talked about the constraints of government funding Contracts and NGO and the NGO system in the U.S. and there's a a book published by women of color feminists called The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. That's a great resource to look at. That a lot of people who problematize the census will say that it has played a role in maintaining the the racial status quo as as is since the 1970s and has actually deepened that you know, the the inability of communities to get out of that status quo because our political work is so locked into the NGO system.
0: I think it's interesting how in the U.S., the dependency on NGOs and community organizations perhaps moves the conversation from the role the government has towards people, whether they're citizens or not, who happen to live in the U.S. territory to have access to some basic needs.
1: Exactly. Yeah. If we talk a little bit with policymakers and social justice activists in other parts of the world, and we talk a little bit about the structure of the United States and talk about how very, very, very limited services are actually offered by the state itself, that they're outsourced to community based organizations, which almost function like private organizations in order to provide these services, which are barely covering you know, barely scratching the surface of what's actually needed, doesn't totally address the needs of the society, and definitely doesn't account for the different types of needs among different racial um, communities or marginalized populations. Like, the census maintains that structure between the state and the NGO system, and that is a way that we can problematize it. But at the same time, the census is one avenue that we have in our hands to at least demonstrate our needs, even if not for the government to do anything about or to allocate resources to, at least for us to know what our community needs are. I mean, I can't tell you how important it would have been for me working at the ACC. I started working at the ACC in 2006 as a social services coordinator. I didn't do the research project on census until 2013. Mm -hmm. How important would it have been for me to know the rates of Arab women and breast cancer and whether or not it was higher than other racial communities, specifically white communities? Mm -hmm. That would have helped me devise my health education programming with Arab women, right? So at the very least, if we can find ways resources to actually know the needs of our community we can respond to those needs even if the government won't budge and give us the resources we need we can find ways to respond to our community we can we can know what issues are affecting them uh, more than other issues what neighborhoods that they live in if we want to go and visit with them and see them and offer programming in a specific community like, we'll know where, to, where we should be offering that, that, those uh, programs. And on the other level, you know, there are wonderful programs within government, within government uh, resource allocation departments that are very connected to culturally and linguistic-specific needs. And one example I can give is the Office on Violence Against Women. The Office on Violence Against Women is a project of the Department of Justice, which is, you know, also home to the FBI, right? So, like, what can we anticipate from an organization like that? But they do have a program called CLASP, which is Culturally and Linguistically Specific Services. And the leaders, the women leaders who are running many of uh, many of the NGOs and the INGOs that clasp funds the leaders who are consulting with clasp on the project pro- program uh, trajectory Many of these women are women of color, black feminist women, Latina feminist women who were leaders, who were champions of women's rights movements in the 1960s and 70s, who have committed their entire life to ending sexual and gendered violence against women, uh, specifically women of color, indigenous women, and black women. They are deeply in touch with their communities. They know what our communities they need. They understand that gendered and sexual violence is deeply connected to legacies of racism and state violence and colonialism, and they would never deny that. But they are operating in very constrained rubrics through a government program and and government funded NGO work right so for me the census is just another example of how it is a tool it is not the revolution it will not anchor a revolution it will not create the kind of drastic political change um, that we need in this country but it is a tool to defend ourselves to resource ourselves and to offer the social wellness and community wellness uh, resources that our communities are in dire need of in the contemporary moment
0: Lubna Qutami is a postdoctoral fellow in ethnic studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and the former executive director of the Arab Cultural and Community Center in San Francisco. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Miran Abulsee. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
1: Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer, our media partner, is a status hour podcast, and Jadalia Ezin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at radio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening.